So let's turn uh, together in God's Word, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, with this being such a red-letter Sunday, I couldn't imagine a better passage of Scripture than this one, which presents two important points. First of all, we have a glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, and He has given to us a magnificent gospel. Let's take a look at our glorious Savior, first of all. And our text is going to tell us four important points about Jesus, the Messiah. But to understand our Lord, we have to turn to the Old Testament. And as we begin in Genesis, we see that God Almighty created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. He created Adam and Eve, and they were good. But they fell. God promised them death, but did not utterly destroy them, and they deserved to die. In fact, he didn't kill them, but they were able to be fruitful and multiply. And from sinful men and women, he drew together his own people. And how can that be? He is holy, holy, holy. And yet he calls sinful men and women to himself. And as we heard just a few minutes ago, he gave to them the law. And the law is the light to the feet of all men and women on the earth, but especially the people of God. Furthermore, he gave these sinners the right and the privilege to worship him, to bow down before him, to, to offer up their sacrifices of praise. He dwelt in their very midst. Wonder of wonders. And then he lifted up a king, a king after his own heart, a king named David. And through the prophets, as we heard from the prophet Isaiah, he promised a coming Messiah, one who would bear on his back the penalty for that broken law. Broken not by him, but by Adam and Eve and all who come after. So as we think about the Old Testament background to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to ask a lot of questions. Why did God not kill Adam and Eve? I would have gone and blown them away had I been God. And why, when the floods came across the earth in the time of Noah. And the Bible tells us in Genesis the the thoughts of the human heart are continuously wicked. It's not like we were washed clean in the flood, but the sins continue to come. And God puts his rainbow in the sky in a sense to remind himself as if he could forget that I will not destroy those sinners, but I will show them mercy. And why does he enter into a covenant with our father Abraham. Abraham wasn't so righteous, was he? No, but God chose to enter into an intimate relationship with him to make promises to his seed that this barren man and this barren woman would have children like the stars of the sky that we see in the Lone Star State that we don't have in western Pennsylvania. Why does he act so graciously as to deliver them from bondage in Egypt? Why does he give the sacrament 
of the Passover? Why does he give good King David? Why does he give a a tabernacle and then a temple? Why does he promise a coming Messiah? Because he is good. And he had today planned from all eternity. This day when men and women join this church and these six youngsters become members as well. So that Old Testament background opens up our text. Turn with me to verse 4 of Galatians 4. And there we learn about our Savior. And in fact, Paul gives us four questions and answers about our Savior from this text. First of all, why was the Son of God sent? The answer to all those other questions, those why questions from the Old Testament, is found in verse 4. The Father has loved unworthy sinners, and all three persons of the Trinity delight in Christ's bride. So the Son of God was sent to obtain a bride, to obtain a people. He was sent forth like a soldier is sent forth into battle. And as Pastor Jonathan knows about counseling soldiers who are being sent forth into battle, so our Savior set his face like flint to go into battle against sin and death, and he conquered over sin and death to draw us to himself. That's what Isaiah had promised so many centuries before. But this Son of God who was sent was sent from somewhere. Jesus Christ left his eternal home. This means that Jesus Christ has always existed. He continues always to exist. But this eternal God is somehow, question and answer number two, born of a woman. He's born of a woman. No one can be born of a man. No wonder, no matter what you read in the papers this week. This statement, born of a woman, at first seems redundant. But critics and even some believers do find it difficult to imagine that the Son of God can actually be born. But it's true. The second person of the Trinity left the realms of glory 2,000 years ago and was truly born of a woman. He was truly incarnate. And pagan mythology had talked about God's being born. And centuries later, Scandinavians talked about God's being born. And America celebrates these gods with the days of the week. We name our days after them. But these are demigods. This is not the true God being incarnate. God's eternal son was born of a woman. And why was he born of a woman? So that he could become, unlike any one of us, the true God-man. He had to be both fully God and fully man. Why fully God and fully man? He had to be fully man to bear our sins. God can't bear sins. But he had to be fully God Because he's going to bear the wrath of God. And man can't bear that wrath. It would burn us up to a crisp. So he had to be fully God and fully man. But that's not all. 
Paul says, number three, he's born under the law. He's born under the law. And this relates back to the Old Testament background. King David was a king, and he was powerful. He can command men to go to the front of the battle so that they can be killed and take their wife. That's absolute power over a man's life. But this King David was to be a man under the law. He had to, like, like a child doing homework, write out the law and keep that scroll underneath his seat because he is under the law. And that was a foreshadowing of Christ, the true king, who will be the God-man under the law. So you know from the time of King David all the way to the time of King Charles III that kings aren't under the law. But this king was under the law. He was born under the law. And why does he live a life under the law? Why can't our Lord Jesus Christ never have a ham sandwich? Because it's against the law. And he was faithful in every point of the law. And why was he faithful in every point of the law? Because that is the standard of righteousness. The Shorter Catechism tells us that sin is want of conformity unto or transgression of this law of God. So the incarnate Son of God becomes a man so that he can live under the law to procure our salvation. This is how we are saved. In the Old Testament, God considered the blood of bulls and goats with true faithfulness to be acceptable in his sight. Righteousness was given. Ah, but there was always something to look forward to because the Day of Atonement occurs one year after the next year after the next year. And Israel, every day after the Day of Atonement, began to build up the load of their sins and they had to wait until the next year for that load to be taken off again. But it came year after year and the promise was that one would come. And who is that one who would come? He is a son of God. That's what Paul tells us. He is a son of God. Now God is one. Again, Israel was taught to boast in the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet he's three. And we hear about this from the very beginning. Let us create. Let us make man in our own image. So the Old Testament hinted at God as the Trinity. And the prophets spoke of this one who is coming, especially Isaiah. He is the bearer of sin, and yet he's fully divine. He is the agent of creation. He is the one who causes the earth to rotate. And he sends forth, at the time of the resurrection, his spirit, the spirit of the Son. Brothers and sisters, Paul has set before us a glorious Jesus Christ, promised from the beginning, sin-bearing God-man, incarnate second person of the Trinity, resurrected from the dead, 
pronounced to be King of kings and Lord of lords, at his name every knee shall bow, both in heaven and on the earth. But secondly, this Jesus Christ has given to us a glorious gospel. We have something to proclaim. Look at verse 2 with me. There's a change that has occurred. The people of God were like children. And it was so much fun to watch the six kids up here, up front, each one with their own personalities, right? But each one was under a guardian. Mom would sometimes draw them in, right? And they wanted to go their own way, and they can't go their own way. God has made it clear that we, as long as we are minors, are under guardianship. And this is something that all human beings understand, all families Understand the nature of parents and children. There's a time when you become mature. There's a time appointed by the Father when if you receive an inheritance, that inheritance becomes yours. And Paul is telling us God the Father had this planned. The Son would come. In the fullness of time, Christ would appear. In the fullness of time, he would receive an inheritance. And brothers and sisters, in part, we are his inheritance. He has a church. And this work of Christ on our behalf has tremendous application. Look at verses 1 and 2. In our prior situation, we were children and heirs. We were under those guardian, uh, that guardianship. And as we think about the Old Testament, it was a true church but it was like an immature church. It was under guardianship. And in verses 1 and 7, Paul mentions specifically that we were slaves. Two times he mentions that we were slaves. And no one wants to be a slave. No one really enjoys being under guardianship. But before we came to Jesus Christ, we were enslaved, weren't we? We were bound in our sin. We loved our sin. We did it freely. We served our master, the evil one. But in Christ, we've been set free. So Paul says we were children and slaves in verses 3, the beginning part. And we were in the second part of verse 3, says enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what are those elementary principles and who are the we? It's not certain whether he's referring to Jewish believers or Gentile believers, but the we is crystal clear. We were enslaved to trying to procure our own righteousness in our own way, whether we were Jews through a a false belief that that we could somehow attain righteousness through law, obedience, or Gentiles through being nice people or being generous. Those elementary principles brought us to destruction. No, it's in Christ alone that we realize that the only standard for coming into the presence of the thrice holy God is an absolute conformity to the will of God as expressed in the scriptures. That's the only way that salvation can occur. And not one man, not one woman can attain that salvation 
in his or her own strength. All of our efforts end up being a terrible and burning failure. But thanks be to the Lord, our situation has changed. So Paul tells us about our present situation. And he gives us five things about our present situation. Look at verse 5. In the beginning he says, we are redeemed under the law. Now in the previous chapter, chapter 3 at verse 13, Paul said already, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now in verse 5 of chapter 4, he uses the same word, redeem, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem means to buy us back. It connects Christ to being under the law. He was under the law. We were cursed by the law. His perfect obedience to the law buys us back and gives us his righteousness. His perfect obedience to the law is our perfect obedience to the law. And as we have enjoyed that righteousness, that means we become adopted sons and daughters of the king. Now the question is, what does What role does the moral law now play in our lives? Christ is perfectly righteous to the law. We are judged to be perfectly righteous to the law. Is the law important to us now? And the answer is indubitably, absolutely. We follow Christ's law because now we love Christ's law. We used to hate it. And now we yearn to follow it. The moral law expresses not only God's will, it expresses God's very being. Let me say it again. It's not just his will. It is who he is. Listen to God's being through the Ten Commandments. I'm going to say the Ten Commandments in a different way that express his being. There is no God higher than him. He is so holy that his name is holy. He commands us to be like him in taking a Sabbath rest. He commands us to honor those superior to us like parents. In that, in what he calls, what we call the economic trinity, the son humbled himself to procure our salvation. We cannot murder Because God is love. We cannot be sexually impure because Jesus Christ is incarnate purity and holiness. We cannot steal because God is the rightful owner of all things. We cannot lie about our neighbors because God always speaks the truth in love. We cannot covet our neighbor's property because God has created all that exists And gives to us what he wills. Having been redeemed to this law. We can live unto this law with love. And furthermore we've received the adoption of sons. Verse 5 at the end and verse 7. Now as I look at the children who were up front. They kind of look like their parents. 
So I don't know if any were adopted, but an adopted child might not look like mom or dad. But even if, and maybe some of you are adopted, an adopted child is truly the child of the parents. Emotionally, legally, they have every right. But that adoption is never earned by that child. It is always gracious. It is graciously given. And we've become adopted children of the king, no matter your background, no matter how humble your your beginnings, no matter how bad your upbringing, you are a daughter or son of the king of kings and lord of lords. And we can celebrate that union that we have with Christ in the supper in just a few minutes. Verse 6 tells us, because you are sons. Again, you can't help your parents. You can't, uh, uh, you can't help it that Wade's your dad, and Max is your grandpa, and Wayne's your other grandpa. And I can see your mother's face in you, right? I, you can't help it. I'm not picking on anybody sitting in the back. And our true identity has to transcend our genetic family, our nationhood, our true sonship, our true family is in Jesus Christ. We have to understand that we are Christians with a small c. We are followers of Christ. And my question to you is this. Are you sometimes ashamed of your family? Are you sometimes ashamed of being a child of Christ? May that not be said about us. May we walk in our new identity in Christ. And fourthly, we can cry unto the Father. A few minutes ago, one of the kids cried out. And crying is effective. Crying is a valuable tool. If the child is wet, it will cry. And it needs attention. If the child is really hungry, it will cry. It needs something from the father. And brothers and sisters, we're like little children. Our father in heaven knows our cries. He hears our cries. And he can quickly re- respond to our cries. Mom can hear that cry two rooms over, two states over. Moms can hear those cries. Our father in heaven is quick to hear. And he's quick to reply. And finally, fifthly, in verse 6, the end, we have received what the Son has sent, that is, the very Spirit of the Son. Brothers and sisters, all three persons of the Trinity were involved in your salvation, and now each one of us who has been united to Christ is an actual temple of the Holy Spirit. We bear the Spirit of Christ within our breasts, We hold him to us, and he holds us to him. 2,000 years ago, Christ died on the cross, and he said the Holy Spirit will come. And on the day of Pentecost, he did come, and we have been united to him in the most organic and intimate fashion possible. If you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, despite your sins, You have the Holy Spirit living within you, the Spirit of the Son. And our union with this resurrected Christ is the greatest gift that any of us could receive. 
brothers and sisters, in these few verses, our Lord has demonstrated to us the nature of the resurrected Christ. He is King and He is Lord. He is not a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He is not hanging on a cross, but He is riding on a great horse and there is a sword in His mouth and He will come to draw us up to be with Him. Even now, He is the King of the heavens and the earth. And we are his sons and daughters, united to him, indwelt by him. And we will rejoice in celebrating the supper that he has for us. All praise be to his blessed name. Amen.